If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 696. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. If you're getting this podcast the week, the last week of August, first week of September, I've got a new class out, Radical Republicans, and I'm going to talk about it again today. You're going to want it. Just use the coupon code RADICALS when you go to mclanahanacademy.com. Click on that Radical Republicans class. Put in the coupon code RADICALS. You get it for 60 bucks off. It's a great deal. You can also buy other classes there, and of course, that keeps this podcast free of charge. You can also go to uh, brianmcclanahan.com. You can click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. If you're watching on YouTube, click on the little heart under the video, the super thanks button. You can throw a few pennies my way that way. And you can also buy my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Just click click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. All those things are great. You help the show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. Comment at YouTube to help the algorithm. That keeps people interested in it, gets eyeballs on it or ears on it, however you want to think about that. And of course, share it around on social media yourself. Let people know you like it. Send me those show requests. Do all you can to keep the show fresh and interesting and get people involved. As people know you like it, they're going to listen to it too. All right. Well, let's talk about the topic of the day. And we're going to finish up this discussion of Victor Davis Hansen and his Really strange infatuation with the Confederacy and bad history, by the way. I mean, that's the real problem with this piece. And I've gotten a lot of comments as I talked about Hanson yesterday on social media and other places that they really like Hanson. They just don't understand his, his, uh, his problems with the South. Well, it's because of the radical Republicans. It's because of the history that he reads. And I'm going to give you a real example of that in the first part of what I cover today. I haven't gotten into the meat and potatoes of this particular article yet. There's so many things here that are wrong with it. It took me 30 minutes just to get into where Hansen was coming from. And of course, it is this radical Republican interpretation of American history that's completely wrong. It's completely wrong. Now, there's a new book out, and I'll talk about it next week, on John C. Calhoun by Clyde Wilson. And um, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to review it, and I'll talk about it next week on the podcast as well. But um, he makes a very good point about Calhoun and what happened with Calhoun in the 1960s and 70s. And that's that everyone became fixated on race. And so when everyone was fixated on race, they really missed Calhoun and who he was and his republicanism. And he, I think that when we talk about Calhoun, when we talk about the South, this slander that Southerners were oligarchs is complete nonsense. Uh, they did believe in uh, the plantation society and having an elite, but so did the North. The North wasn't the happy land of free egalitarian people where everyone's a communist. Now, Eric Foner would like you to believe that. In fact, 
That's where VDH, Victor Davis Hanson, is getting a lot of his history. So let me get into the piece because I think we need to do that. So one of the things he said, the comparison between the Old South and New Silicon Valley uh, oligarchs, so to speak, is racial obsessions. Now, first of all, this is creating, again, a false dichotomy that the North, somehow in the antebellum period, didn't have any racial obsessions, whereas the South did. Well, I think Hansen either forgets, forgets or doesn't know that the, uh, the phrase Jim Crow and Jim Crow legislation originated in the North. In fact, what you find in the 1850s in Connecticut rail cars, which were segregated, by the way, which Southern rail cars were not segregated by law, uh, is that in the antebellum period, is that uh, the term Jim Crow was actually used. It was used. And look, C. Van Woodward, in his book, The Strange Career of Jim Crow, which I've talked about many times on this podcast, brings this up. He says, look, the North can't point any fingers at the South. They created the entire racial se- legal racial segregation system in America, which is true, right? The black codes that the South passed in the postbellum period, the early postbellum period, were modeled after laws that were found in northern states and northern cities. They were, they were the same thing. That's why Southerners were shocked at that particular point. Wait a second here. We're passing the same kind of legislation you have in the North, yet you're saying we can't do it. It was the same legislation. So this is the funny thing about all this, that Hansen somehow wants to create this free, happy land of uh, butterflies, flowers, and rainbows and racial egalitarianism in the North, and this evil, insidious place in the South. You know who else is doing that? Well, the radical Republicans. So let me read what he says. A striking parallel between the two systems is their remarkable fixation on racial essence, particularly the use of racial pedigrees to adjudicate political and social status. One of the most important milestones in the development of slavery in the South was Bacon's Rebellion of 1676-1677, in which the mostly white indentured servants of Virginia rebelled, among the rebels were also some enslaved blacks. Now, he doesn't mention why they rebelled. They rebelled because the Indian problems on the frontier were not being addressed by the governor, mostly, and also because of high taxes. This is a tax revolt. It's a tax revolt. Now, what he says next is interesting. I'm going to tell you where he gets it from. In the aftermath, plantation owners began to prefer to import black slaves from the Caribbean and Africa and pass slave statutes to formalize a racial distinction between temporarily indentured white servants and permanently indentured black servants. The effect was to support the power of established plantation owners over the poor of both races. Well, you know who says that? Eric Foner. That's straight out of Eric Foner. Straight out of Eric Foner. Or Howard Zinn. Either one. You're looking at communists. So here is the conservative, Victor Davis Hanson, regurgitating nonsense from communists. Even Foner doesn't go quite this far. This is nonsense. No one, no one with half a brain who's read the primary material and who isn't a communist comes away with this kind of interpretation of the event. That's the problem here, right? Hanson is a really bad historian, or at least he's using really bad historians for his position here. A really bad historian on the United States. Now, again, some people like Hansen, and I've said I like his carnage and culture. Some people like Hansen for his military history. This is just garbage. It's garbage. So this is the issue with Victor Davis Hansen. Who is he using? I saw another conservative commentator at National Review list the other day. 
his preferred historians. And who was on the list? A whole bunch of commies. Well, how, I mean, if that's the case, if, if, you're, if your great historians are in America are Eric Foner, we're doomed. If the right is reading Eric Foner and somehow thinking that we are going to save America, well, I guess for the Communist Party, I guess we're going to continue the revolution from the 1860s, we're doomed, right? We're doomed. Contemporary affirmative action and diversity programs ironically mimic Southern racial rules in a variety of unfortunate ways, he says. Race often became a construct, divorced from the realities underlying its supposed importance. It's a construct. This is, this is leftist speak, right? Race is a construct. Who says that? Leftists. Race is a construct, right? All this is a social construct. Everything is a social construct. This is leftist speak. And this is where I'm, this is what I've said. Hansen is not a conservative. If he's going to say this kind of stuff, he's not a conservative. Race is a social construct. This is the kind of stuff that, you know, your modern deconstructionists, your modern historians like to run around and say, right? Ray, uh, I said this. In the South, being labeled black among the non-slave class because of a single black great-grandparent might mean the loss of social status or the inability to find a career commensurate with one's talent or training. In contemporary America, conversely, the ability to establish minority status, even when neither appearance nor class offers any such indication of economic oppression, can be of clear benefit in admission and hiring. Such ambiguity explains why those without African-American or Native American lineage still believe that they can claim minority status by simple assertion, as the fraudulent cases of Ward Churchill, Rachel uh, Dolezal, and Sean King, and Elizabeth Warren attest. Now, look, uh, to say that there wasn't an issue of race, North and South, by the way, it wasn't just in the South, this is the problem with this, is to say that race wasn't used. It was, of course. It was used everywhere. And you couldn't even live in Illinois if you were black. And, and you know who did that? Well, a great Union general who has a statue in Washington, D.C. is the one that, 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 that wrote that legislation, got it hammered, and passed through Illinois. That's who did that. Right? So this is the issue here. To say that this is the South that created these racial constructs and that you know they were the ones... Because, again, he's creating a false dichotomy. Note the racialist paradox. In the South, those of mixed lineage sought to pass for being white to ensure privileges. Movies like Pinky and Band of Angels assumed as near normal the now strange idea of those mixed heritage going to in great efforts to pass as white. Again, this is Hollywood. This is a false dichotomy because you had the exact same situation in the North. It, when 1619 Project says, hey, you know, we, we've had race being used in America, I agree with them. It has been. It's been used for a long time in America. There's nothing, there's nothing odd about saying that. It's not even that controversial. They think it is. Because why? People like Victor Davis Hanson. They know that conservatives have been running around for years saying that this has never been done. Of course it has. Of course it has. In the 21st century, the same obsessions are applicable for similar privileges and career advantages, but with the racist switch. Those of mixed lineage now seek to pass for being non-white. Philip Roth, in his 2000 novel The Human Stain, subsequently made into a film of the same name, revealed the ironies and paradoxes of contemporary racial obsessions. As a black professor who grew up passing for white, 
is attacked decades later and then destroyed by black students as a white racist. One of Roth's many lessons is that while racial changes and racial stereotyping occurred over decades, the same genetic fixation on race endured. Yes, because, of course, um, the human stain is real life. Look, literature is important and movies and all these things are important. They mirror, they reflect society. But now he's, he's going off on a whole different tangent. The half-black actress Halle Berry once appealed to a court to embrace the neo-Confederate one-drop rule in a child custody fight with her white former boyfriend. She felt that her one-quarter black daughter should be considered black and thus raised by the black Barry, not her boyfriend. As Barry herself put it, quote, I feel she's black, I'm black, and I'm her mother, and I believe in the one-drop theory. Okay, so is this the only place that had the one-drop theory? I mean, we know, again... Ohio, Illinois, many states didn't want black people around at all. We know Northern Republicans. Eric, if you want to use Eric Foner, he uses Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men book, right? Which very clearly outlines the issues of race in the 1850s in Western expansion. This is not just Southern America. This is all of America in the antebellum period. Like Southern state record-keeping, current U.S. census forms keep close tabs on racial status. Like Southern state record-keeping, um, the U.S. census did this. <laughs> the U.S. census did this in the period leading up to 1860. It wasn't just Southern state record-keeping. This was the United States census. Go back and look at it. And likewise, U.S. Census Bureau findings indicate much in the way of fraudulent claims of minority status. Yet even the most ardent supporters of racially enhanced contract set-asides, admissions, and hiring has of yet failed to establish a coherent system of racial identification and classification, either because to do so would, be, would sometimes have no real correlation with appearance, current discrimination, or clear claims of prior victimization, or because the resulting labyrinth of rules would be uh, would be the worst apartheid would be some of the worst apartheid systems of the past from the Third Reich to South Africa. You see, the South is the Third Reich in South Africa. Look at what he's just done there. So he's saying, oh, with all this stuff, yeah, we we don't know, but but if we did, it would be like if we followed the South, it would be like Nazi Germany or South Africa. You can't make this stuff up. This, is, I mean, you might as well have Eric Foner writing this piece because essentially he did. Right when you look at how Victor Davis Hanson used Eric Foner for a part of this particular piece, and of course, what's what's amazing about that is he ignores the one book that Eric Foner wrote that's actually halfway decent, which is his book "Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men," which gets into this northern fascination with race, a northern fascination with race, not southern, but northern. Even Jennifer Weber's book, Copperheads, talks about this, how the Republicans would make race an issue against Southerners. So does, uh, uh, so does the Leon Lit Litwack book, Litvak, um, uh, North of Slavery, another book. Uh, the Bernwanger book, uh, Frontier Against Slavery. But again, it's based on this racial... Uh, classification in America. It's about keeping blacks out of the Western territories. Southerners were willing to let them go over there. Right? Who was, who was really the, the group that didn't want black people around at all? Was it the South or the North? 
One-party politics, he says, until the 1852 election, slavery was not always the central issue of American presidential elections. Yet in the seminal year, the Whigs nominated General Winfield Scott, a close associate of the noted abolitionist Senator William Seward, and lost almost all states in the South and many others besides. Prior to that election, Southern states had split their votes fairly evenly between the Democrats and Whigs. For example, the winning Whig candidates William Henry Harrison in 1840 and Zachary Taylor in 1848 both carried many Southern states. Slavery, however, became an increasingly important issue as slave-based cotton exports grew to become the chief source of national export income, and as the nation acquired new territory after the Mexican-American War, much of it felt to be conducive to slave-based plantationism. Now, let me say something about the 1852 election. Um, it wasn't... Look, to say that Scott lost the election because of his association with William Seward is... Revisionism at its worst. Uh, Scott was not a popular person. Now, he was a Southerner. The Whigs nominated a Southerner and, of course, military hero in Winfield Scott. But to say that this... Look, Franklin Pierce uh, was preferable to the majority of Americans because of his personality, number one. Winfield Scott had this person's uh, reputation of having a terrible personality. That, I mean, the, the election really came down to personalities. By 1852, we had the Compromise of 1850, and the issue was basically off the table. Southerners, and, and look, all the radicals were defeated. So Franklin Pierce offered the best candidate, North and South, because of his very moderate views on everything. He supported the Compromise of 1850. He supported popular sovereignty. He supported these things, and Southerners were generally in agreement with that. Right? And he was a truly national candidate. Winfield Scott was not. The Whig Party platform was not accepted. The Whigs themselves were not pushing any kind of anti-slavery message at all. Again, this is to read too much into what happened here and to tell a very bad story about the 1852 election. Then he says the Whig Party collapsed finally over its internal division on the issue of slavery before the 1856 election. Well, this is, this is true. I mean, the, the Republicans were formed in 1854, Right, So the Whig Party essentially collapsed in 1854 as Kansas became an issue, and this was the extension of slavery into the Western Territory. But as Jefferson Davis pointed out, it's not really over slavery now. It's about power. And who's going to have the power? Michael Holt made this very clear in the political crisis of the 1850s. It was a political crisis, not a moral crisis, not a crisis over the status of slavery or race. It was about who was going to have power in the general government. Its successor, the new anti-slavery Republican Party, was essentially a northern regional organization with no support in the South. Well, that's true. The remnants of the Southern Whigs later joined the Democratic Party, creating a Southern one-party state. Afterwards, aside from Reconstruction, there were only a few exceptions to the notion of a Democratic solid South in the national elections, at least until Eisenhower carried Texas in 1952. The Democratic Party remained a minority in the North until the advent of mass immigration in the late 19th century. Pro-slavery and segregation ideologies explained much of the South century and a half allegiance to Democratic Party politics. Yet broader economic interests also played a large role during the period and are crucial in understanding the heyday of the slave-based plantations in the 1850s. Okay, so he's saying, well, I mean, it's all about race, but then it was also about economics. But you know what's at the heart of that? Slavery. Slavery. I mean, so here it is. It's all slavery. Look, the Whig Party did collapse because of Kansas-Nebraska. 
This is the Democrats putting this issue on the table again. And the most people had thought, particularly the Whigs, this issue is settled. We've got, we've got this new Western territory, the Mexican session. That's popular sovereignty. The rest is under uh, the Missouri Compromise. So the Democrats push popular sovereignty, which forces Whigs to choose what are they going to support. And the Southern Whigs could no longer tolerate uh, what they thought as extensive attacks against the South by Northerners. So you had this rhetorical uh, barrage noted by Charles Sumner, who I talk about in the uh, in the uh, Radical Republicans class in 1856. It's why I start with that speech. It's why I start with the Crimes Against Kansas speech, because that was the death knell in many ways for the Whig Party. They could no longer tolerate someone who would stand up as a leader of the Whigs, the Republicans, wherever it was, and listen to that. Because they didn't consider themselves to be evil people, devils, vomit. They didn't consider South Carolina to be the worst state ever created in the United States. But that's essentially what the radical Republicans were saying. And so if you're going to operate from that position, well, where do you go from there? So he says, of course, before the war, you had all these cotton plantations. I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase some of this because of time. You had all these cotton plantations, and uh, because of that, uh, he says, politics, uh, policies governing the transportation, finance, and agricultural supply sectors throughout the South were determined by their effect on cotton exports. So it's because of all these large plantations that were growing cotton. Uh, and these were all plantations that were growing cotton, by the way, which, of course, is not true. Most cotton production was produced on middle-sized or small farms. Right? I mean, this is the case. So, yes, uh, large plantation owners were producing a lot of cotton, but you want to know what the real money was in in the South? And I mentioned it on Monday was sugar. Or mentioned it yesterday, I'm sorry, was sugar on Wednesday. Sugar production. That was big. And in fact, when Davis uh, would talk about the South and their production, he would mention all of the exports of the South, all of the agricultural exports, not just cotton, but everything the South produced. So he said, these additional issues help explain why most Southerners came to support a one-party system, even though there were only... 393,000 actual slave owners in the 15 so-called slave states by 1860, or about 4.75% of the free slave state population of 8 million people. Not surprisingly, the health of the slave-based economy was critical to Southern politicians. So he's saying these 393,000 people controlled the entire South, which we know from data is simply not true. But, I mean, this is old, radical Republican, oligarch, the South is oligarchs, all this stuff. He's just regurgitating this nonsense. So then he gets into California and he says, look, this is, this is the same thing. You've got all these people in California, uh, one-party rule in California, one-party rule in these Democratic uh, state houses, uh, and that's just like the South. It's just like the South, because you have these oligarchs, essentially. Um, and... Uh, these oligarchs control California politics. And that's just like the South. The Democrats have always been this way. It's not the Republicans, it's the Democrats, even though we're ignoring uh, political dynasties in the North and other things. I mean, this is just ridiculous. It's nonsense. Then, of course, he says, big tech and big cotton go hand in hand. Silicon Valley companies are just like these cotton plantations. Uh, and, of course, this is all neo-feudal this is all feudalism. It results in, uh, in 
the, the destruction of middle-class Americans, middle-class Californians, middle-class Southerners because of these things. Well, I mean, you might say that uh, what's happening in California because of the increase in prices has caused the middle class to decline in California. Maybe. I mean, housing prices are through the roof. Um, I think that's affecting poor Californians more than anything else. I mean, look, there are people making good money in Silicon Valley, and these are people that are kind of I mean, upper middle class jobs. I don't know. I mean, look, I don't live there, and thank goodness I don't live in California. Uh, but the, the fact is, um, you, the South that wasn't devoid of a middle class the South had a pretty substantial middle class, and these would be the middle, the middling farmers, of course. And again, I bring up the book by Lacey Ford, who is in some ways just as bad as Eric Foner. But at least uh, he pointed out the, the importance of all these middle class people in the South. It, it, basically, the idea was to debunk the old notion of the feudal society of rich and poor South. That was it. There was no middle class at all. And I, there's a piece at the Abbeville Institute I find fascinating by Bill Cawthon, William Cawthon. And he talks about the South and, and the economics of the South and how the South, even if you take slavery out of the South, was a more wealthy section than the North. When you throw slavery in as kind of as property, of course, it's much more wealthy. But then when you throw, you take that out and you just look at the status of wealth in the South, the South is just as wealthy as the North, if not more wealthy than the North. Okay, because of all these middle-sized landowners. So th that thesis has been blown apart. But, but here, Hansen is running with something that's been completely discredited by real research. Then he brings up globalization. One big quote, like the Democratic Party of the Old South, the Democrats today of Blue States America are the party of the rich. So, I mean, this is just stupid, right? Yeah, there's rich people in the Democrats. There's rich people in the Republicans, Right? Uh, the Democrat Party of the Old South, the party of the every he just said, wait, everybody in the South is a Democrat. But the Democrat Party is a party of rich. What about all the people that were not rich in the South who voted Democrat? <laughs> and what about the Republicans, who many of whom were large industrialists? I mean, I'm pretty sure all the Rockefellers voted Republican for a long time. Uh, the Carnegies, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts. Uh, the, the, the Republican Party is not the party of the rich. This is always the perception of the Republican Party, right? It's the party of the rich. I mean, this is where you know Will Rogers made a, a ton of money in the 1930s, bashing the Republicans. It's the party of the rich. I mean, Hanson doesn't want to... See, this, this is selective history at its, at its worst. There's all rich people in all these parties, right? And this is just kind of stupid. And of course, globalization, the idea of globalization, he's bashing in some ways in this piece, of course, immigration, uh, which, by the way, the Republican Party was uh, very much for in the early post-bellum period. This is where you know, the Straussians and, and Michael Anton said this. The Republican Party was creating these hard you know, anti-immigration policies. Um, the Republican Party was partly responsible for... Um, the idea of of uh, birthright citizenship, right? I mean, Wong Kim Ark, right? And so I know that again, uh, Anton and others. I've done a deep dive in this. This isn't what it did. The Republican Party has always been anti-immigration. This is what it's always been. Democrats have always been pro-immigration. Now, in in the antebellum period, certainly, uh, Democrats were in favor of large numbers of Irish coming in and other things in these cities. And so you saw that. And even in the post-bellum period, you saw it too. The Republicans generally tried to uh, restrict that. 
Uh, but it was Grover Cleveland who didn't want the Statue of Liberty put in New York. He was a Democrat, by the way. So, I mean, look, the, you've had both parties responsible for some of the pro-immigration rhetoric. Uh, but the Repu- If you go back and look at these uh, 1860s and 70s Republican Party platforms, they are uh, heavily infused with pro-immigration rhetoric. Right? I mean, it's all over the place in it. So uh, to say that the Democrats were uh, you know, somehow responsible for this, or this is the Democrat thing, whatever, uh, this again is selective history. This is what Hansen is doing in this piece. And then, of course, he gets to the two things of nullification and secession. This really makes uh, this really makes the Democrats the modern Californians neo-Confederate. This is what Hansen really despises. I mean, all this other stuff he's making a case for, which again is based on some parts of Eric Foner. But anyways, this is the stuff that Hansen really doesn't like. Another neo-Confederate characteristic of progressive states is the embrace of states' rights, a once taboo notion that conjures up memories of racist segregationists like George Wallace standing in the doorway of the University of Alabama in an attempt to exempt Alabama from federal civil rights legislation. Whereas Southerners believed that an intrusive federal government had no right to interfere with and disrupt states' rights, uh, states, I'm sorry, unique and morally superior culture. So too, blue states feel Washington has no business in impeding their progressive agenda. So this is just insidious, right? The states' rights is all about segregation. It's all about racism. It's all about George Wallace. As Forrest McDonald points out, and by the way, I'll just say this about McClanahan Academy. There's going to be something you're really going to want with states' rights coming up uh, in the next few months. You're going to want it. Okay, it's, it's going to be something new. Uh, the next class is on Jefferson Davis, but the, after that, you're going to see something new, and it's going to be on states' rights, and you're going to want this. All right. So if you're listening to this and you're a McClanahan Academy subscriber and you like McClanahan Academy, you're really going to want to get this. Okay, so I'll just say that. But Forrest McDonald wrote a great book on states' rights and saying, look, I mean, this is complete garbage what these people are saying about states' rights. It's, it's not, it's not a, a, a cover for racism and slavery, as the left likes to say, or as Victor Davis Hanson, who's kind of on the left, honestly, and his positions, he's a 19th century leftist, like to say. So, of course, he brings up sanctuary cities, uh, he brings up, uh, he says, the rationale is similar to South Carolina's nullification acts of federal tariff laws in the 1830s, or the takeover of federal property within southern states from 1860 on, or again, the effort to render inert civil rights legislation in the 1960s. In all cases, past and present, a small rich elite feels it is wiser and certainly morally superior to the federal government, and thus has the right to pick and choose which national laws to obey. That's not what they said. This is, this is like an uh, eighth grade version of nullification. And it's the, one of the shortest sections in the entire piece because Hansen really doesn't know what he's talking about here. This is where Hansen is at his weakest. Um, I mean, the whole piece is awful. But this part right here is just completely terrible. Uh, I mean, look, Tom Woods in the book Nullification is great. Um, you should get that on Nullification. Uh, the Tenth Amendment Center does good work on this stuff. This is just completely laughable garbage. Uh, it's just 1830 South Carolina. And why would South Carolina oppose the federal tariff? Well, because that's about race. You see, Don Fehrenbacher told me that. (laughs) Uh, I mean, this is about race, right? So it's all about race. It's all about race. It's what it's always about. I mean, what about northern efforts at nullification before that? Or how about northern efforts to nullify uh, the fugitive slave law? I mean, 
where's that VDH? Or how about the fact that Jefferson and Madison brought it up in 1798 when slavery wasn't even even on the table in any way, right? I mean, nullification somehow was Southern uh, opposition to slavery or um, pro, um, opposition to anti-slavery situations? No, I don't think so. In fact, I mean, look, for all the things that a lot of these dopes on the left have talked about, Southerners were critical of nullification in 1860 because they said it was being used illegally to knock down the fugitive slave law. So, a- anyways, um, this is just silly. Right? And then, of course, secessions. Secession, like the like denizens of the antebellum southern states, the blue state leftists believed that the federal government, although they so often control both as elected, its elected and non-elected officers, no longer delivers the political results that their ideologies demand. And like the old Confederates, their moral smugness prompts dreams of a blue state secession from the Neanderthal majority. So you see, the denizens of the antebellum southern, the denizens. The Neanderthals. I mean, of course, you know, that's he's trying to say that this is what leftists think, but Southerners never called Northerners Neanderthals. They didn't call them that. You know who called Southerners Neanderthals? Northerners, Radical Republicans, Charles Sumner. You know who called people names? Radical Republicans. So if you really want to say the leftists are like anybody, it would be the it would be the Radical Republicans of the 1860s and 1850s and 1870s. That's who the blue state Democrats are acting like. Radical Republicans. The same people that Victor Davis Hanson thinks are his saviors. The same people. And of course, he brings up stuff about the 2016 election and how people are saying bad things about um, about Red America and how we bring, you know, blue state secession. Uh, one thing here. In a February 2021 Nation essay, The Case for Blue State Secession, Nathan Newman displays an eerie neo-Confederate zealousness, reminiscent of Southern demands on the Union in roughly 1830 to 1860. He says, We face a mounting constitutional crisis, one that in turn amplifies the crisis of voter suppression, racial and economic inequality, and climate change. With a majority will that is repeatedly thwarted by minority rule in every aspect of policy, Ultimately, building a serious blue state threat to secede is the only way to end this crisis and create a nation based on equal representation for all. It's eerily neo-Confederate. Eerily. Eerily. So he's saying the majority is being thwarted by the minority. Uh, Southerners would say that the, the, uh, the uh, minority is being crushed by the majority at least because of a numerical majority, but that's it. You can't, I mean, look, these blue staters are the radical Republicans. The blue staters are the radical Republicans, not the other way around. So um, I, I want to wrap this up uh, with this this uh, this conclusion to this piece. He says, uh, despite static or falling populations, crumbling infrastructure, mounting debt, high taxes, poor public schools, overregulation, and inc- income inequality within blue states, there is talk in these states about demanding constitutional reform and radical changes in American custom and practice to address what they feel is underrepresentation of the federal government. Such talk of an unsalvageable red state America and the need for divorce from its toxicities was only furthered by the election of Donald Trump in 2016 and has accelerated during and after his tenure. Like antebellum Southerners who came to hate Northern Unionists, today's blue staters feel bullied by a majority 
that does not share their own supposedly enlightened views. So wait a second here. That's not what the that's not what they're saying. They're saying they're bullied by a minority, which conservatives, if you look at the numbers, are a minority in America. They're saying they're being bullied by a minority. Donald Trump never got 50% of the vote at all. Hillary Clinton won in 2016. Even if you take, look, the 2020 election and all the things that happened there, Joe Biden probably got more popular votes. I mean, he did definitely by the numbers, but even if you say there's some, there's some, uh, you know, ways to look at this and say, well, maybe we, you know, maybe there's some votes that are questionable here. Joe Biden still got more popular votes. This is why they want to do away with the Electoral College, because they look at it as a minority check on their majoritarian power, the numerical majority. You know who? You know who's concerned about that? Of course, Calhoun. This is what Hansen should be worried about. Demo- I'm sorry, conservatives are not the majority in America anymore. They're not, and yet he's saying they are. The, the Democrats are open. They want to have blue state secession because they think that the minority keeps challenging their majoritarian status. But he says it's the exact opposite. The American left resents bitterly that their inferiors sometimes beat them in national elections. Well, they beat them in Congress or, of course, in the Senate, maybe. We'll see how that works out in 2022. The election losing Hillary Clinton, ob- oblivious that her infamous deplorables rant may have cost her the Electoral College, not the majority, though. The majority in the Electoral College, but not the popular majority. This is what the Democrats are talking about. You're furious that Red State America had somehow de- denied her the presidency. Despite the current Democratic Party control of the presidency, the House of Representatives, and the Senate, the left's complaints about the American system are many. And, those, and these whines have only grown louder after the 20, 2000 and 2016 elections that saw victories by Republican presidential candidates who did not win the popular vote. But wait a second. I thought you just said that the... Republicans are the majority. They didn't win the popular vote, so that meant they were the minority in those. This is what the Democrats are worried about, right? Now, in, in the radical Republicans were, of course, a minority, okay? They were a minority at that time, at least it's thought. They only got 39.6% of the popular vote. I mean, if you look at Lincoln as a radical Republican candidate, whatever, 60% of the American population didn't want Lincoln, but then after that, that point, of course, you had the Democrats as a permanent minority in the North. The idea of the Republicans is to make Democrats a permanent minority throughout the United States after the war is over. They wanted majoritarian control. This was about power. This is what they were trying to do, remake America so that it never had a situation where they would not be out of power again. And these people were the leftists of the 19th century. Victor Davis Hanson is, is trumpeting leftists. He did not even realize it. Ending the constitutionally mandated electoral college became an obsession of the leftist activists class after George Bush's 2000 election, but the clamor intensified once the hollow blue wall of Democrat-controlled swing states crumbled in 2016. It didn't really crumble. Trump won a couple of areas that swung the states in those in those elections, but it was very, very close. I will say that. So electoral college, that's a minority protection. The Senate is a minority protection. Because the Democrats have the majority. But again, right up here, Hansen said, well, the problem is uh, blue states feel bullied by a majority that does not share their own support. But what he's saying here is all this stuff, the, blue, the, the, the red states aren't a majority. The people of the red states aren't a majority. They're a minority. All these checks are there to check majoritarian power. So he should be tra- uh, championing minority rule. 
in the government. But he's not. One almost feels like the blue states are in danger of going the way of Shelley's Ozymandias, who asked those passing by to look upon his works of which nothing but ruins remained. Or to put it another way, in an ironic fashion, the obdurate blue state north is reminiscent of the mullish Old South, while the red state New South is beginning to resemble the dynamic New North. Old North, I'm sorry. The dynamic Old North. The dynamic Old North. <laughs> you see... What he's doing is just regurgitating Charles Sumner. This Charles Sumner could have written this this uh, discussion, though flipping some of the things on its head. But Charles Sumner could have written this. The radical Republicans could have written this. This is why I said, if you want to understand Victor Davis Hanson, you've got to understand the radical Republicans of the 1850s through the 70s, because this is where they get this stuff from. And of course, they're all reading Eric Foner and some of these other really awful historians, uh, James Oakes, and all these people that um, are leftists. You know, Sean Valence. These are these are the heroes of conservatives when it comes to history. And this conservative I mentioned at National Review said, I like their history, not their op-eds. You can't separate the two. You cannot separate their op-eds from their history. It's impossible. All right. So I've gone long on this one. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next week. See you then.